He said, to the extent I desire to move through you, you must allow me to cut on you. The Leader's Cut. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Leader's Cut, especially those of you for whom this is your first time to join us on The Leader's Cut. Just so you know how we roll here, this is a conversation. And even though it seems like it could be a one-sided conversation, I don't ever want it to be. And I don't just mean jump into the comments. Uh, while I love when you jump into the comments, I love to have conversation via the comments and see what you're thinking and also see how I can be praying for you. But I also mean just in your heart. Don't let this just be something you listen to. Let it be something you engage with, especially this episode, because I'm going to give you some points, but probably even more importantly, I'm going to give you some questions that I want you to answer. And as you can see from the title of this cut, uh, we're going to do some some heavy lifting with this cut. Uh, we're going to go we're going to go deep. And so I want to before we jump in and even tell you why we're going where we're going, I want to pray because we're going to invite the Holy Spirit into our time together because I feel really strongly we're all about to get cut on like a mug. <laughs> so instead of inviting the Holy Spirit in, maybe we should just ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we get cut on. Spirit of the living God, you are so gracious and so kind, especially when you're cutting on us. And I, I just pray that each of us would do some heavy lifting during this time. Each of us would allow you to cut on us, on our hearts, on our flesh, in a very deep way. We, we yield and give you access to the deepest parts of our heart. And we ask you to cut on us. We know we need it. And I pray you would use this time to do some really sweet things in each of our lives. And may this time cause each of us to grow even closer to the God of the universe than we ever have been before. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me give you some context, kind of calibrate you a little bit on why we're going where we're going. As I filmed this, yesterday I turned 45. And in my opinion, and I'm not saying this is right, kind of my perspective, um, 45 is like mid-prime. I don't mean that, that you can't have prime after 60. I don't mean that at all. I've got some friends, uh, a good number of friends who are over 60 doing amazing things. What I'm talking about is like that prime hot streak. Most people, from my vantage point, my perspective, kind of go on that hot streak uh, their prime between 30 and 60. And I'm at 45. I'm right smack in the middle of that. And one could say that if I live to be, let's say, 90, 45 is halfway to 90. Now, some people would call that midlife. You can call it whatever you want. And I know there's like this, this running joke um, for people in midlife, and we call it a midlife crisis. Here's what I would say. I think the Lord starts posing some really important questions when we get around the midpoint. And one of the reasons is scriptural. Only a fool 
refuses to sit down and count the cost before beginning to build. And I'll paraphrase what comes next. And so this last uh, weekend I was in Dallas and before I went, I, uh, I was there ministering and I, I felt the Lord say, I'm going to give you a birthday present while you're there. Have your Bible with you because it's going to be a, a passage. So I'm good. That's great. I'm excited. I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know what passage it's going to be. And I was sitting on the stage there in Southlake and felt the Lord give me Haggai chapter two. And this is the second time in my life, my adult life, I've sensed the Lord say something with this passage. I'm going to read it to you. All right. And this will help give you perspective. Zach, uh, Haggai chapter two, uh, verse 19. I am giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn. You have not yet harvested your grain and your grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, and olive trees have not yet produced their crops. But from this day onward, I will bless you. Now, the first time the Lord gave me this passage, um, I got pretty excited about it. I mean, if you, if you sense the Lord say, from this day onward, I will bless you. I, as a younger man, I, I took that out for a spin in my heart. I thought, it's happening. This time, when the Lord gave it to me, uh, I responded totally differently. And I didn't even think about why until 48 hours later. But my response was, okay. <laughs> okay. I, I don't I didn't know why I was responding that way. It was like, mm, okay, thank you. And then two days later, uh, I felt the Lord start digging in. And I want you to know, in this episode, I'm going to take you a little bit deeper than I normally do as it relates to what's going on in my heart. And I'm going to be really transparent and vulnerable. Uh, I get that some people think that that's weakness. Here's what I would say. Strength is measured not by what you're strong enough to hide, but by what you're strong enough to reveal. That's how I measure strength. And so I'm going to, I do this with those that I mentor, um, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll just take them a little further behind the curtain than they ever thought I would take them. And it's a lot more personal than they think. Not because I'm going through some crisis, not, I just had an incredible couple of days with the Lord and and uh, something pretty cool happened. And so now I want to walk you through what he just walked me through. 48 hours after I felt like the Lord gave me Haggai chapter 2, um, I felt the Lord just out of nowhere say, ask me this question. And this is the question I want us to spend time talking about today. Here was this question. Preston, what if? I don't do anything else. What if that's it? I'm asking you, what if God did nothing more? He asked me, Preston, what if that was it? What if I don't do anything else in your life? And it really caused me to start asking some questions. Because I could tell he was definitely asking the question and it was deep. It was landing in a really deep place. 
So here's, here's what I want to ask as, as I start walking you through this and I take you a little bit more behind the curtain and listen, I'm approaching this episode not as though I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people. I just come out of a little time with the Lord and I said, Lord, help me only think about you and the one person on the other side of this camera you're wanting to speak to. And so I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to think about what everyone else thinks. I just want to talk to you. And there's some things I want to give to you and want to help you with and help you do that involve some things God walked me through. All right. But here's what I would ask. Just, just please don't go into counseling mode. I feel like sometimes when I get vulnerable in public, people are like, oh, Preston, they either correct me or they counsel me. So I don't need you to do either one. Here's what I need. I need you just to listen to my heart and to learn in your heart. This, this is what I need. Okay? So let's walk through this, uh, and I'm going to give you some questions, but here's where we're going to start. And I don't really care. I laid this thing out, 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 2C, because it really doesn't matter. It's really one long sentence. It's a run-on sentence, okay, that I chopped up into pieces so that we could walk step-by-step through it, okay? When we think about answering the question, what if God does nothing more? What if he doesn't do anything else? Here's what happens. Here's the first thing. I'm calling it 1A. It makes you assess what you don't have and what you haven't done. This is immediately where I went. When the Lord said, Preston, what if I do nothing else? What if I don't do anything more for you? I immediately went to, okay, what don't I have that I was hoping to have and what haven't I done, which I was hoping to do? Okay, told you I'm gonna be open and transparent. I'm gonna answer this honestly. One thing, um, and there were a couple of things, but one thing, that came to my mind that I don't have, that I'd hope to have, uh, was a little piece of land to work and walk. It's just that simple. You might call it a ranch. Uh, I don't know how big something has to be. I don't need a ton. Uh, just a little space, a little piece of dirt to work and walk. That's something immediately when the Lord said, what if I don't do anything else? My mind went to... Oh, I'll never get to have, I would never get to have a piece of dirt to work on and, and walk with you on. And then it got a little bit deeper. When I started thinking about what have I not done that I had hoped I would do. If this is it, if he doesn't do anything more for me, with me, through me, where does that leave me? And please don't read into this, okay? Just let me be a human, all right? Don't, don't read into anything. Uh, my mind went to, well, uh, I never built some big church. I'm not saying this thought is right, okay? I'm telling you what my thought was. Well, Lord, if you're not going to do anything else, and listen, I'm grateful for the church that I pastor and the size that it is, but you've got to understand, I came from a massive church. And so part of my brain, probably without realizing it, thinks in those terms. 
So when I thought about what have I not yet done that I had hoped to one day possibly do? And my heart just said out loud, then I'm, I'm never going to build a big church. Then here was something else when I thought about what I haven't done. I said, Lord, if you don't do anything else through me, then I'm obviously never going to write a book which changes the way a generation sees intimacy with you. These were just some of my things, but they were honest answers. Remember, the human heart hopes for things. It's not bad. What's bad is this. If you don't know what you're waiting for, that you're hoping for, you're most likely sicker than you think. Proverbs 13 verse 12 says, hope deferred. When you hope for something, and it takes a long time to come, in other words, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. It's completely natural to hope for something. Another way to say hope for something is a desire of your heart. I'll catch myself every once in a while thinking this thought about a desire in my heart. It's selfish and stupid to want a little piece of dirt. <laughs> like I'll catch myself just having that thought. And here's what I'd say, and I'm saying this to me, not just to you. If a desire of the heart was inherently bad, God would never give them to us. Psalm 37 verse 4, take delight in the Lord and watch this, and he will give you your heart's desires. Now listen, I'm not using this as a passage for name it and claim it. I'm trying to simply use this verse to remind us if our heart's desires were inherently bad, God would never go on record and say, I'll give them to you. He would never give us anything bad. Okay, so we arrive at the first two questions of eight questions I want you to write down, okay? So I'm hoping you'll write down the points and then I'm hoping you'll write down the questions and then sometime this week that you will take some time alone with the Lord to answer these questions, right? Question number one. What do you not have that deep down you hoped you would have by now? I'm leaving it up there on the screen for you so you can write it down. You don't have to pause it. Here's question number two. What have you not accomplished that deep down you hoped you would have accomplished by now? Okay, I don't want you to, to stop the episode and answer these questions. I want to go all the way through the entirety of the conversation so that you have context for the full conversation, all right? Here's 1B, point 1B. When you think about answering the question, what if God does nothing more? Second, it makes you assess why you felt you needed it. First, it makes you think about what you don't have and what you haven't done and then it makes you assess why you feel or felt you needed it. Listen to this one-liner. When you're waiting for a what which you want, it's always a good thing to ask why. Just let that sink in for a sec. When you're waiting for a what which you want, 
it's always a good thing to ask why. As it relates to wanting things in this life, many want things, but few are brave enough to find the why. Thinking about why, why do you want the things you want? Why do you want to accomplish the things you want to accomplish? What's the why behind your what? Now, I want to give you three dangerous whys behind a good what. First, identity. A dangerous why for a what is it's an identity thing. If your identity is found in what you can accumulate or accomplish, you're always going to be left feeling incomplete. Do you want what you want? Because if you get that car, it says something about you. Do you want to accomplish what you want to accomplish in business? Because you feel like it says something about you? Is it an identity thing? See, I think a lot of people don't dig around the soil of their heart to figure out the whys behind their wants because they're afraid to find the truth. Digging in the soil of your heart is never easy, but it's always beneficial. Surgery hurts, but it heals. I don't think it's possible to be emotionally healthy without consistently digging around in the soil of your heart. What's your why? Do you want what you want? Do you want to accomplish what you want to accomplish? Because it's an identity thing. Second, the second dangerous why, completeness. You think it completes you. If having things makes you feel complete, you're far more broken than you thought. And here's why. Temporary things can only fill voids temporarily. If you think you are incomplete, in Christ Jesus, if you think you are incomplete, still lacking things in order to be complete, you'll always be on the hunt for what you think will make you complete, for what will fill you up. This this is, this can get dangerous. If, if you think such and such will complete you, then you will chase it till you get it. And if the Lord never wanted you to have it, here's what you're going to find. It doesn't do much for you. It doesn't fill the void. It doesn't complete you. Here's the third dangerous why behind a want? Comparison. This is a doozy. This is a doozy. We've talked about comparison on the Leaders' Cup before. But I, I want you to see, if you desire something as a result of comparing to someone else, all that is, is just good old-fashioned covetousness and jealousy. <laughs> okay, it, it's, That's all it is. It's not just comparison. If you want something, if you think you have a desire in your heart because you compared yourself to someone else and they have something you don't have, 
That's not just comparison. That's covetousness and jealousy. Remember when we were kids, uh, let's go back to like four years old, and you were playing with a friend at their house, and they had a toy you wanted. And you went over and tried to rip it out of their hands, and they wouldn't let go of it, so you start fighting over it, pushing each other. Okay, have we ever stepped back to really think about why we were grabbing the toy out of our friend's hands? I think I know why. Because we believed deep down, even at that age, we had a thought. They have something I don't have, which makes them something I'm not. Immaturity says you are better than me when you have more than me. Comparison. It's such a dangerous fool's errand. Here's how I kind of see it. If I don't want your life, I definitely don't want your stuff. If I look at your life and I say, I, I would not want that life when compared to mine. No matter how much more awesome your life seems to everybody else. If I see the stress, if I see the, the dangers, if I don't want your life, I definitely don't want your stuff. With every single thing you want in this life, there's always a why behind your want. Okay, so let's go back to my uh, abbreviated list. This wasn't my complete list. This is just my abbreviated list. On the dirt. And I'm trying to show you. I'm going to try and model as we go through these questions so that you don't just answer these questions from a shallow place. All right? It's not even worth your time to do it if you're just going to kind of address it partially. All right? I really sense we're supposed to go down deep. That's where these cuts are going to be with this episode. Let's talk about the dirt. Why did I want the dirt or why do I? Well, I feel normal. I feel completely undistracted when I'm out in the middle of nowhere on a little piece of dirt. I feel like it's the second most consistent place where God visits me beside my prayer closet. And for me, it seems to be the number one place where I feel like a little boy. And the older I get, the more challenging it gets to keep the heart of the little boy. And for some reason, going back years and years and years, I I can remember the first time I went to the ranch to hunt deer. It, It marked me. There was something different about that place. And so in my heart, I've just always had this desire to have a little piece of dirt. Let's talk about the big church. It gets a little harder to talk about with something like this. Why did I want to pastor a big church? Well, as I I walked through, tried to walk through the recesses of my heart, uh, it was an identity. One of the things you have to know about me, if we're going to run together, I, I don't know why it's this way. It has to be the Lord. Uh, but I, I don't spend too much time thinking about what people think about me. Uh, and what I mean is, like, I don't sit around thinking, what does so-and-so think about, in this case, the church I pastor? I just don't think like that. Um, here's how I think. What do the people I love most, like my inner circle, 
what do they think? Are they proud of the work I do? Do they see me contributing to the work of God in the earth? And here's what that led to. And I didn't even know if, if I really realized this was that deep down in me. And again, I'm just trying to show you, if you'll, if you'll dig, you're going to find some stuff you weren't really aware of. Every time I dig in the soil of my heart, I find something I didn't know. And it helps me learn more about me, which leads to helping me be a more whole me. Here's what I, I learned that I, I didn't know. I didn't know. Because if you would have asked me, Preston, why do you think you feel like you need to pastor a big church someday? I probably would have said, well, because I came out of a big church and, and that's what you're supposed to do. You know, but that's not what was in the soil of my heart. Here at the core of my heart was what was in the soil. I think without realizing it, I thought that that was the way to honor my spiritual dad. I think without even realizing it, that I, because it's what I came out of, it's what I was born into it's what i grew up in in ministry i think uh i somewhere along the line just started to think the way to show pastor robert that he made a good investment in me because that man invested greatly in me especially over the first 20 years of of my ministerial career and I think without realizing it, I thought that's the way I, I can show him he made a good investment all those years. <laughs> and here's what's funny. As I'm digging around the soul of my heart, processing why did I want to do that, I felt the Lord say, Preston. And he was kind of, it was a sweet shake of the head kind of vibe. Preston, the number of people who attend the church you pastor means far less to me than the pleasure I feel based on how you pastor the people you pastor. It's not about how many people, Preston. It's about how. See, I mean, just I'm just trying to show you. As I dug around in the soil of my heart, there the Lord is to help me make sense of what I'm seeing and to bring some correction. And then the third thing I gave you on my list of things I, I either want or wanted to accomplish. Deep in my heart since I was a boy. And I don't know if God put this here or if this is just me wanting something God doesn't want. But I've always wanted to write a book that changes the way a generation sees intimacy with God. I, I never wanted to be famous because of it. I never, and that's not how I processed it. And when I dug around, well, why? Why do you want that? Was it to get famous? No, I, I, that, that wasn't in the soil. I didn't see it. Maybe I'm, I'm blind, but I didn't sense it or see it in the soil. Here's what I felt. The most valuable thing I have in my life is my friendship with God. For 30 years, now 32, 
Um, I've, I've gotten to be friends with God and it hasn't changed my life. It defines my life. And so the little boy always just wanted to write a book that helps people become best friends with God. I'm not saying the little boy will. I'm not saying the little boy is supposed to. I'm just telling you a desire in my heart that's been there for a really long time. And I started digging around. Why is it there? Okay, so now let me put it on you. Question number three. Why do you feel you need what you're hoping for? I just showed you. I did a little digging. Why do I feel I I need the dirt that I want? So question three for you. Why do you feel you need what you're hoping for? Question four. Why do you feel you need to accomplish what you're hoping to accomplish? Again, dig around the soil of your heart to find the why behind your wants. And it will help you get clear on the wants God has for you. Okay? Here's the third thing. I'm calling it 2A. That happens when you process and try and answer the question, what if God does nothing more? Third thing, it makes you assess what you already have. Remember, the need for more can ruin the way you see what you already have. The way I like to describe this, uh, because of just in all the years of counseling, uh, I, I've kind of learned something about humanity. It appears that for most humans, a bird in hand is less appreciated or less special than a bird in the air. I know that might not make sense, but some people say the grass is always greener on the other side. The way I'd say it is, a bird in your hand seems to be typically less appreciated than a bird in the air. Oh, look how beautiful that bird is. When I'm staring at some bird flying around in the air, but I have one in my hand, what's happening? I'm paying no attention to the bird God's put in my hand. This is how people have affairs. The quote-unquote bird in hand gets completely overlooked and thus underappreciated because one of the two in marriage are looking around at the gym at some bird flying around. And so they end up chasing a bird that seems better. And all it was is they stopped looking at the bird they already had. Okay, so the question, obviously, we're going to ask is, what do I have? And I'm going to give it to you formally, but I'm going to answer it for me. So this caused me to go through, well, what do I already have? Immediately, I went to, my wife is my best friend. That's one of the greatest things God's ever given me, besides himself. My wife is one of the greatest things that will ever happen to me in this life. Then I went to my kids. I'm having so much fun watching my kids come into their own.
I enjoy each of them. They're they're each very different. Um, but I mean, when I think about what I have, I can't believe my kids are my kids. That God could have given them to any daddy in the history of humanity, and yet he chose to give them to me as their daddy. Uh, then I went to my best friend. I have a best friend I never imagined I would ever have. Literally makes my life what it is. Logged more time with him than probably any other human being outside of my flesh and blood. So as I started thinking, what do I have? I go to Timmy. Then I go to my close friends that make my life so much better. And then I, I went to the spiritual bloodline that makes me me, that God gave me. And then I went to the church I get to pastor that has some incredibly amazing humans that make it what it is. I just started going down the list. What do I have? Here's the issue. If you're constantly thinking about what you don't have, you will always overlook what you do have. And I can't ever be grateful about what I do have if I've forgotten what I actually have. And you only forget what you actually have when you're busy looking at all the things you don't have. If you don't celebrate what you have, you'll convince yourself you must have more. And when you convince yourself you must have more, you'll scheme to get more than God wants to give you right now. And remember, when you scheme to get something, you will lose it faster than you got it. What do you have? This is question number five. What do I presently have in each of the six major areas of my life? What are the six major areas? Spiritual, physical, emotional, relational, financial, professional. I think I got them all right. Spiritual, physical, emotional, relational, financial, professional. There you go. What do you presently have in the six major areas of your life? What are the blessings that have been bestowed upon you in each area of your life? This is a very good exercise to do on a semi-consistent basis. I think one of the ploys of the enemy is to try and get us fixated on all the things we don't have. Well, if we don't have a running list of all of the things we're grateful for, then we're going to be totally screwed over. What do you presently have in each of the six major areas of your life? You can't celebrate what you have if you don't even know what you've got. That brings us to the next part. When you ponder the question, what if God does nothing more? Next, it makes you realize how much God has given you. Once you think about how much you have, what you have, and I'm just talking about stuff. I'm talking about all the blessings. You then realize how much God has given you. James 1.17 says, Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. Every good and perfect gift comes from God our Father. It's an important step in this little journey. I don't just want to think about everything I have. 
I want to be mindful of where it came from. Scripture is clear. It all comes from him. Romans eleven thirty six. For everything comes from God and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. Everything comes from him. Every good thing I have in my life is a gift from God. Okay? So I, I want to... Um, I want to teach you something, and then I want us to walk through it, okay? And I'll, I'll teach it by illustrating it. I want you to think about, it's Christmas time, okay? And there are two types of parents in this illustration. One type of parent is the absentee parent who lives in Europe, and you live in the United States. Um, you don't see them. You get uh, an email or, or a text from them every once in a while. But, but for all intents and purposes, they're an absentee parent. But on, on your birthday and on Christmas, they always send you gifts. Okay, They're on the other side of the pond, completely absent, but they send you gifts. Versus the other type of parent in this illustration, the very present parent. And on Christmas Day, the present parent wakes up four hours earlier than you do because they're so excited to see you open your gifts from them. And, and I want you to get this picture, okay? Because this is important and it matters to how you see God. We don't really think that the absentee parent has any kind of look on their face as they give us a gift, right? But a present parent who's been up most of the night because they couldn't sleep because they were so excited for you to open the gifts they're giving you, they definitely have a look on their face. I mean, I need you to see this. When a present parent gives a gift, it's like this. They're more excited than you are to open the gift. The absentee parent isn't even in the room. And because they're not in the room, you don't even think about the look on their face. Okay, which type of parent is God? Which type of parent is he? The absentee parent who isn't in the room and gives you gifts, but he sends them from afar and doesn't really check up on you that much. Or is he the present parent who never slumbers nor sleeps? And one of his reasons for never slumbering nor sleeping is he can't wait for you to open up the gift he's going to give you, okay? Here's what you need to remember. Every gift God gives is personal. And that means to me, and I'm going to walk you through this, I think God has a very specific look on his face. And it's a different look on his face with every gift he gives us. That's what I think. Okay? So I'll walk it through for me because I'm going to ask you the question. I want you to see it. What look did he have on his face when he gave me Holly? I'm convinced God gave me my wife. I didn't find her. He gave her to me. So here's the question. Preston, what do you think the look on his face was when he gave you Holly? I, I think his, his look was something like this. I think it was like a, a head shake, a little bit of an eye roll, and a smirk. I think it was like, because at the time I was telling him, there's someone else I think I'm going to marry. <laughs> and here Holly was in my life and I really wasn't even paying attention to her. 
I think when he gave her to me and me to her, I think he he kind of had a head shake, eye roll, and a smirk like, boy, you don't know what you are talking about. Just trust me. I got you. How about with my kids? What was the look on his face when he gave me each of my children? Remember part of my story when I was around 15, I asked the Lord for a girl and two boys in that order. He ended up giving a girl and two boys. What was the look on his face? The look I see on his face, I'm not telling you I'm right. I'm just telling you when I imagine the look on his face in that moment when he gave me the gift of each of my children and getting to be their father. I think it was like this eternally confident grin. You might call it cocky. He, he was giving me what I asked for in order. How about with my best friend, Timmy? What was, Reston, what do you think the look was like on God's face when that first day when he gave you Timmy? Honestly, the, the look I see on his face is a sound and it's like the loudest chuckle on the earth as he introduces us to one another. How about with my friends, each of my close friends that means so much to me in my life and, and help make my life what it is. I think with each of my friends, it was like this firm nod, like Preston, trust me, you're going to need them and they're going to need you. I imagine it being some firm nod. My bloodline, the spiritual bloodline God has given me. I think the look on his face was like a soul-piercing stare. Like, steward this, son. You're one in a family of many. You're to steward this legacy well. How about when he gave me Pillar Church? And it's not mine, you know what I mean. When he asked me to pastor it, when he connected me with Pillar, I think he had this Hugely pleasurable smile from ear to ear. Now, I know this is a little bit different than past leaders' cuts, but I'm trying to show you. If you don't think about the look on his face and how personal the look was when he gave you a gift... I think you're going to have a hard time having a personal relationship with him because you're just going to turn him into the absentee parent who just sends you a gift from afar and doesn't really check in to see if you liked it or not. Every gift God gives is personal. Genesis 2, verses 18, 19, and 20. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. He's talking about his friend, Adam. I will make a helper who was just right for him. There was no Eve. Verse 19, so the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man. Get this picture. He brought them. God personally brought each animal to Adam to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. But he didn't just bring each one of them to see what he would call them. Remember, he had just said, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. So the picture I get, God brings each of the animals to Adam, to his friend. To see if Adam finds a helper suitable for him. So God is looking at Adam's face to see if one of these animals 
was the friend Adam was hoping to have. And at the same time, I just see God looking at Adam's face to see if he sees the look that says, that's the one, which he did end up seeing with Eve. I, I see the look on God's face like this with each animal. How about this one? This one? And I just imagine Adam going, no, that's an alligator. That can't be my best friend. H- how about this one? That's a cheetah. I can't be friends with that one because I can't keep up to with it. How about this one? That's a worm. We're not going to be able to connect. I, I just, I wonder if he just went through the whole list of animals and God was hoping, God already knew. And all of it, he was hoping to find, bring a helper suitable for Adam. Now, God knew none of the animals were going to be suitable. But I think we need to personalize this story a little bit more. Adam never gave God the look. That's the one until Eve. But the whole time, God had a look. So here's question number six. What do you think the look on God's face was when he gave you each of your favorite things in each of the six areas of your life? If you're married, what was the look on God's face when he gave you your spouse? That uh, job you were praying for, for years and years. What do you think the look on God's face was when he gave you that job? What about that friend that you, you stayed up late nights praying years and years for? What do you think the look on God's face was when he gave you that friend? When you begged God for children and couldn't get pregnant, what do you think the look on God's face was? when he gave you your first child. I think this is a really important exercise. If I don't think about the fact that he had a look on his face when he gave me the gift, I'm just depersonalizing him. And when you depersonalize God, it's harder to have a personal relationship with God. So what do you think the look on his face was when he gave you each of your favorite things in each of the six areas? of your life. When you think about all of the good God has done for you and given you, that brings us to the next thing. When you do that, it makes you focus on how good God is. When you start to really ponder all of the good things God has done for you and given you, this then makes you focus on how good he is. Every time I spend time being grateful, the longer I take to say thank you to God, the more I come to the place where I end up saying, you did this. Psalm 33 verse 5, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Think about that. He's so good that the earth is full of his goodness. God isn't good because of all the things he gives me or or the things he has given me. God is good because he is good and his heart towards me and for me is good. Psalm 119 verse 68, you are good, God, and you do good. And this leads to one of my favorite questions. This is like the perfect date night question, and I I use that term loosely, a little bit in a silly way on purpose to calibrate us, because if if you're married, 
or you're dating someone, a good date has good questions. One of my favorite questions to answer in the presence of the Lord, because I think it's one of his favorite questions for me to answer in his presence, is this. Question number seven. What are your favorite things about God? Think about it. In this, in the last question, question number six, we were focused on his face. Just think about it. We are focused on his face. And now, as we've focused on his face, when I focus on his face and I start to see things about him clearly, who he is, what he does, how he does what he does. I answer this question. What are your favorite things about God? How good he is. How about this one? How forgiving he is. One of my favorite things about God, I make mistakes. And the look on his face when I make a mistake is always so forgiving. It's one of my favorite things about him. One of my favorite things about God is how extravagant he is. I, over the years, I've learned he doesn't just give something. He like tries to render you speechless when he gives it. He, he, he's just extravagant. He's overwhelming. He's immeasurable. One of my favorite things about him is how extravagant he is. Another one of my favorite things. I love how never-ending he is. One of my favorite things about God is I'm going to get to spend eternity chasing him and never come to the end of him. This is like, for a nerd like me, who's desperately in love with him, this is one of the best gifts you could give someone like me. I'll never come to the end of him. He is so good and so extravagant that everything he is is never ending. It goes and goes and goes and goes. Here's one more thing I'll give you. It's one of my favorite things about God, how much of a chaser he is. One of my favorite things about my life is being chased by the God of the universe. It's one of my favorite things about him. One of the things I pray for you is that every day of your life, you would wake up in the morning with a very keen sense of just how much the God of the universe is chasing you all day long. And I don't mean like a desperate one chasing one he's trying to track down. David said it like this, surely your goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. David got an understanding. God's a chaser. He chases those he loves. It's one of my favorite things about him. He chases me. When you focus on the good things he fills your life with, you get focused 
not just on the things, but on him. That brings us to what I'm calling 2D. This thing causes you to get focused on him. When you don't just focus on the things you have, but you transition, understanding every one of the things you have, God has given you to have, then you end up just getting focused on him and none of the stuff. Psalm 31 verses 19 and 20 says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. I love this passage. I'm grateful for all the the good things I have in my life. I understand it's a long list. And I understand every good thing I have been given was given to me by God. And the more I think about the good God who has done so much good for me, the less I think about all of the good, doesn't mean I forget or I stop celebrating, but it does mean the more I start just focusing on him. And that leads to question number eight. What if God did nothing more? Preston, what if I didn't do anything else? It's odd that he would ask that question 48 hours after I felt like he took me to Haggai chapter 2 and said, from this day on, I'll bless you. And it caused me to start thinking, why the first time years ago when I felt God say, from this day onward, I'll bless you, why did I get so excited? I think if I were to be honest, I think it was because I was a little too focused on all of the stuff. My excitement was, he's going to do this and this and this and this. And then this time, he says it. And two days later, he says, but I have a question. What if I don't do one more thing you're asking me to do? What if I do nothing more? And as I arrived all the way through all of those questions, coming back to the question, I felt my heart just say, I don't care. I just don't care. It's okay. I have you. This little boy never thought we would be this close. I remember I'm not close to him because of anything I've done. The only reason I'm close to him is because of what Jesus did. But this little boy never imagined he would ever, ever get to be best friends with the God of the universe. And I don't know if he calls me his best friend, but I definitely call him my best friend. (laughs) And on my 45th birthday, and I don't know if I've ever been in this place, 
at such a deep place where I was. Where I said, if you didn't do one more thing, genuinely, Lord, and there are other things I'd hoped you would do. If for whatever reason you didn't do one thing more, it's okay. You've done more than I ever imagined. And the most important thing you've done is let me be best friends with you. If this is it, and not one more new thing happens in my life for the last, let's say, 45 years of my life, the second half of my life, I have you. It's amazing how simple life gets. When he's the thing you search for, Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26 said, Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, and my spirit may grow weak. But God, you remain the strength of my heart. Watch this next part. God, you are mine forever. (laughs) I don't know if that's where I got, but I hope in my heart it is. And hear me, it's not saying there's nothing else in all the world I want, I'm just saying, when compared. I just think the enemy tries to get us so fixated on what we don't have and what we've yet to do. And his goal is to ruin what we've already been given. And if we are his children, the number one thing we've been given is him. It's him. I really hope you take some time this week to answer these questions. And I hope the Lord does something far deeper in your heart than it did in my heart as I walk through these questions. And I didn't give you everything, but I just wanted to show you a little bit. Why don't you set a goal this week? I'm going to have the most intimate time alone with the Lord that I've ever had in my whole life. And all I tried to do in this episode was just give you kind of a trail of breadcrumbs that I think might help you get to that place. Can you imagine how your time might go if you started describing out loud alone with the Lord what you think the look on his face was like when he gave you different things? Can you imagine how your alone time with the Lord is going to go this week if you just start getting diarrhea of the mouth in your heart and telling him all of your favorite things about him, 
being descriptive about them? Can you imagine if the two of you are able to go through such a process in the soil of your heart to where on the other side of it, when God asks you the question, what if I didn't do anything more for you that you were able just to say, I don't care as long as I have you. This is what he wants. This is his heart for us, that we would have that kind of heart for him. Let me pray over you and over your time that I hope you have alone with the Lord this week, answering some of these questions. God, I love my family so much, and whether they're in Rwanda, whether they're in London, whether they're in South Africa, whether they're, they're in the British Virgin Islands, whether they're in my backyard. I'm so grateful that I get to be in this family, your family. Lord, I just pray over my brothers and sisters. I pray you'd visit them this week. It's been such a wonderful week between the two of us. <laughs> I was on the road. We just got so much time. Lord, you know what you did in my heart and what we got to do together this week. Lord, I pray you would do so much more with each of them in their hearts, in their lives, with you this week. I pray heaven op would open up over them as they begin to lay out the list of all of their favorite things about you. I pray a new season of gratitude would begin as they just look upon the list of all of the things they're so grateful for in each of the six areas of their life which you have given them. Holy Spirit, I pray you would help each of them as they dig around the soil of their heart to find the why behind each of their big wants. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd show them things they didn't even know they were feeling. Show them things they didn't even know were true about themselves. God, you slowed things down for me this week. We went on the slowest, longest walk in some time. And I pray you would give my brothers and sisters an even more rich and slow walk together with you this week. May you be their obsession the ultimate desire of their heart. And may they get the privilege of seeing and sensing the look on your face when it happens. God, we adore you. Visit us. Would you visit us, each one of us, that we might experience a holy, memorable moment with the creator of the universe.
In Jesus' name, amen. I love you so much. And I'm going to be praying, especially the first couple weeks after this airs, I'm going to be praying that as you see this, as you finish this time together, that your time with him in response to our time together would literally take your breath away and leave you without the ability to describe what you sensed him do, what you see him do, what you hear him say, how you see him respond. I love you. Can't wait to hear how it goes for you. See you next week.